Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, Chapter 12, The Conclusion of At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft. And now, our story. Danforth and I have recollections of emerging into the great sculptured hemisphere and of threading our back trail through the cyclopean rooms and corridors of the dead city. Yet these are purely dream fragments involving no memory of volition, details, or physical exertion. It was as if we floated in a nebulous world of dimension without time, causation, or orientation. The gray half-daylight of the vast circular space sobered us somewhat, but we did not go near those catched sledges or look again at poor Gedney and the dog. They have a strange and titanic mausoleum, and I hope the end of this planet will find them still undisturbed. It was while struggling up the colossal spiral incline that we first felt the terrible fatigue and short breath which our race through the thin plateau air had produced. But not even fear of collapse could make us pause before reaching the normal outer realm of sun and sky. There was something vaguely appropriate about our departure from those buried epochs, for as we wound our panting way up the sixty-foot cylinder of primal masonry, we glimpsed beside us a continuous procession of heroic sculptures in the dead race's early and undecayed technique, a farewell from the old ones, written fifty million years ago. Finally scrambling out at the top, we found ourselves on a great mound of tumbled blocks with the curved walls of higher stonework rising westward, and the brooding peaks of the great mountains showing behind the more crumbled structures toward the east. The low Antarctic sun of midnight peered redly from the southern horizon through rifts in the jagged ruins, and the terrible age and deadness of the nightmare city seemed all the starker by contrast with such relatively known and accustomed things as the features of the polar landscape. The sky above was a churning and opalescent mass of tenuous ice vapors, and the cold clutched at our vitals. Wearily resting the outfit bags to which we had instinctively clung throughout our desperate flight, we rebuttoned our heavy garments for the stumbling climb down the mound and walked through the eon-old stone maze to the foothills where our aeroplane waited. At what had set us fleeing from that darkness of earth's secret and archaic gulfs, we said nothing at all. In less than a quarter of an hour, we had found the steep grade to the foothills, the probable ancient terrace by which we had descended, and could see the dark bulk of our great plain amidst the sparse ruins on the rising slope ahead. Halfway uphill toward our goal, we paused for a momentary breathing spell, and turned to look again at the fantastic tangle of incredible stone shapes below us, once more outlined mystically against an unknown west. As we did so, we saw that the sky beyond had lost its morning haziness, the restless ice vapors having moved up to the zenith, where their mocking outlines seemed on the point of settling into some bizarre pattern which they feared to make quite definite or conclusive. There now lay revealed on the ultimate white horizon behind the grotesque city a dim, elfin line of pinnacled violet whose needle-pointed heights loomed dreamlike against the beckoning rose color of the western sky. Up toward the shimmering rim sloped the ancient tableland, the depressed course of the bygone river, traversing it as an irregular ribbon of shadow. For a second we gasped in admiration of the scene's unearthly cosmic beauty, and then vague horror began to creep into our souls. For this far violet line could be nothing else than the terrible mountains of the Forbidden Land, highest of Earth's peaks and focus of Earth's evil, 
harborers of nameless horrors and arcane secrets, shunned and prayed to by those who feared to carve their meaning. Untrodden by any living thing on earth, but visited by the sinister lightnings and sending strange beams across the plains in the polar night. Beyond doubt the unknown archetype of that dreaded Kadath in the cold waste beyond abhorrent Lang, whereof primal legends hint evasively. We were the first human beings ever to see them, and I hope to God we may be the last. If the sculptured maps and pictures in that prehuman city had told truly, these cryptic violet mountains could not be much less than three hundred miles away, yet none the less sharply did their dim elfin essence appear above that remote and snowy rim, like the serrated edge of a monstrous alien planet about to rise into unaccustomed heavens. Their height, then, must have been tremendous beyond all comparison, carrying them up into tenuous atmospheric strata, peopled only by such gaseous wraiths as rash flyers have barely lived to whisper of after unexplainable fails. Looking at them, I thought nervously of certain sculptured hints of what the great bygone river had washed down into the city from their accursed slopes, and wondered how much sense and how much folly had lain in the fears of those old ones who carved them so reticently. I recalled how their northerly end must come near the coast at Queen Maryland, where even at that moment Sir Douglas Mawson's expedition was doubtless working less than a thousand miles away, and hoped that no evil fate would give Sir Douglas and his men a glimpse of what might lie beyond the projecting coastal range. Such thoughts formed a measure of my overwrought condition at the time, and Danforth seemed to be even worse. We'll return with our story right after these sponsor messages. And now we return with the conclusion of At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft. By H.P. Lovecraft. Yet long before we had passed the great star-shaped ruin and reached our plain, our fears had become transferred to the lesser but vast enough range whose recrossing lay ahead of us. From these foothills the black, ruin-crusted slopes reared up starkly and hideously against the east, again reminding us of those strange Asian paintings of Nicholas Rorick. And when we thought of the frightful amorphous entities that might have pushed their fettedly squirming way even to the topmost hollow pinnacles, we could not face without panic the prospect of again sailing by those suggestive skyward cave mouths where the wind made sounds like an evil musical piping over a wide range. To make matters worse, we saw distant traces of local mist around several of the summits, as poor Lake must have done when he made that early mistake about volcanism, and thought shiveringly of the kindred mist from which we had just escaped, of that and of the blasphemous horror-fostering abyss whence all such vapors came. All was well with the plain, and we clumsily hauled on our heavy flying furs. Danforth got the engine started without trouble, and we made a very smooth takeoff over the nightmare city. Below us the primal cyclopean masonry spread out as it had done when we first saw it, so short, yet infinitely long, a time ago, and we began rising and turning to test the wind for our crossing to the pass. At a very high level there must have been great disturbance, since the ice-dust clouds of the zenith were doing all sorts of fantastic things. But at 24,000 feet, the height we needed for the pass, we found navigation quite practicable. As we drew close to the jutting peaks, the wind's strange piping again became manifest, and I could see Danforth's hands trembling at the controls. Rank amateur that I was, I thought at that moment that I might be a better navigator than he in effecting the dangerous crossing between pinnacles 
and when I made motions to change seats and take over his duties, he did not protest. I tried to keep all my skill and self-possession about me, and stared at the sector of reddish farther sky betwixt the walls of the pass, resolutely refusing to pay attention to the puffs of mountaintop vapor, and wishing that I had waxed stopped ears like Ulysses' men off the Siren's coast to keep that disturbing windpiping from my consciousness. But Danforth, released from his piloting and keyed up to a dangerous nervous pitch, could not keep quiet. I felt him turning and wriggling about as he looked back at the terrible receding city. Then ahead at the cave-riddled, cube-barnacled peaks, sidewise at the bleak sea of snowy, rampart-strewn foothills, and upward at the seething, grotesquely clouded sky. It was then, just as I was trying to steer safely through the pass, that his mad shrieking brought us so close to disaster by shattering my tight hold on myself and causing me to fumble helplessly with the controls for a moment. A second afterward, my resolution triumphed and we made the crossing safely. Yet I'm afraid that Danforth will never be the same again. I have said that Danforth refused to tell me what final horror made him scream out so insanely, a horror which, I feel sadly sure, is mainly responsible for his present breakdown. We had snatches of shouted conversation above the winds piping and the engines buzzing as we reached the safe side of the range and swooped slowly down toward the camp. But that had mostly to do with the pledges of secrecy we had made as we prepared to leave the nightmare city. Certain things, we had agreed, were not for people to know and discuss lately, and I would not speak of them now but for the need of heading off that Starkweather Moor expedition and others at any cost. It is absolutely necessary for the peace and safety of mankind, that some of Earth's dark, dead corners and unplumbed depths be let alone, lest sleeping abnormalities wake to resurgent life, and blasphemously surviving nightmares squirm and splash out of their black lairs to newer and wider conquest. All that Danforth has ever hinted is that the final horror was a mirage. It was not, he declares, anything connected with the cubes and caves of those echoing, vaporous, wormily honeycombed mountains of madness to which we crossed, but a single fantastic, demoniac glimpse among the churning zenith clouds of what lay back of those other violent westward mountains which the old ones had shunned and feared. It is very probable that the thing was a sheer delusion born of the previous stresses we had passed through, and of the actual though unrecognized mirage of the dead transmontane city experienced near Lake's camp the day before. But it was so real to Danforth, "'that he suffers from it still. "'He has on rare occasions whispered disjointed and irresponsible things "'about the black pit, the carven rim, the pro-shogoths, "'the windowless solids with five dimensions, "'the nameless cylinder, the elder pharos, yog sohoth "'the primal white jelly, the color out of space, the wings, "'the eyes in darkness, the moon ladder, "'the original, the eternal, the undying, "'and other bizarre conceptions.' but when he is fully himself, he repudiates all this and attributes it to his curious and macabre reading of earlier years. Danforth, indeed, is known to be among the few who have ever dared go completely through that worm-riddled copy of the Necronomicon, kept under lock and key in the college library. The higher sky as we crossed the range was surely vaporous and disturbed enough, and although I did not see the zenith, I can well imagine that its swirls of ice dust may have taken strange forms. Imagination knowing how vividly distant scenes can sometimes be reflected, refracted, and magnified by such layers of restless cloud, might easily have supplied the rest, and, of course, 
Danforth did not hint any of these specific horrors till after his memory had had a chance to draw on his bygone reading. He could never have seen so much in one instantaneous glance. At times, his shrieks were confined to the repetition of a single, mad word of all too obvious source. Tekeli! Tekeli! Thank you for joining us for this great story by H.P. Lovecraft. I wanted to share a little bit about the inspiration for the story. Lovecraft had a lifelong interest in Antarctic exploration. He had been fascinated with the Antarctic continent since he was at least 12 years old, when he had written several small treatises on early Antarctic explorers, one biographer put it. At about the age of nine, inspired by W. Clark Russell's 1887 book, The Frozen Pirate, Lovecraft had written several yarns which were set in Antarctica. By the 1920s, Antarctica was one of the last unexplored regions of the earth in which large stretches of territory had never seen the tread of human feet. Contemporary maps of the continent show a number of provocative blanks, and Lovecraft exercised his imagination in filling them in, with little fear of immediate contradiction. However, he was basically accurate in presenting the geographic knowledge of Antarctica as it was known at the time, and he referred to the continental drift, a theory which was then not widely accepted. In Lovecraft, a look behind the Kalolhu mythos, Lynn Carter, mythos, Lynn Carter suggests that one inspiration for At the Mountains of Madness was Lovecraft's own hypersensitivity to cold, as evidenced by an incident in which the writer collapsed in the street and was carried unconscious into a drugstore. Because the temperature dropped from 60 degrees to 30 degrees Fahrenheit, the loathing and horror that extreme cold evoked in him was carried over into his writing, Carter wrote and the pages of Madness convey the blighting, blasting, stifling sensation caused by sub-zero temperatures in a way that even Poe couldn't suggest. Lovecraft was also inspired by Edgar Allan Poe's novel The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket, whose concluding section is set in Antarctica. Lovecraft had written that he was trying to achieve with his ending an effect similar to what Poe accomplished in Pym. He was also inspired by Edgar Rice Burroughs' At the Earth's Core, written in 1914, a novel that posits a highly intelligent reptilian race, the Mahar, living in hollow earth. One biographer wrote, Consider the similarity of Burroughs' Mahar to Lovecraft's Old Ones, both of whom are presented sympathetically despite their ill-treatment of man. Both are winged, web-footed dominant races. Both are scientific, scholarly races with a talent for genetics, engineering, and architecture. And both races used men as cattle. At the Mountains of Madness was received negatively during Lovecraft's lifetime. Lovecraft himself stated that its hostile reception had done more than anything to end my effective fictional career. Theodore Sturgeon des described the novella as perfect Lovecraft and a good deal more lucid than much of the master's work, as well as a first water true blue science fiction. We'll return with brand new stories here at 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre, next week Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern. Thank you very much for being a part of the journey. We'll be back soon.